This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And uh, last week was a big one for energy and environment policy announcements. The federal government finally announced what it would do instead of the renewable energy target. A national energy guarantee is now up for negotiation with the states and hot on the tails of that announcement, the Victorian renewable energy target law passed the Victorian parliament mandating 40% of energy in the state being renewable by 2025 and Premier Daniel Andrews also committed to a single-use plastic bag ban. To talk about this and probably lots more. Here's Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. And Cam, a few things in there, if we uh, talk about Victoria first, a few things in there that uh, Friends of the Earth has been lobbying for for quite some time. Yes, there is. Um, so the VRET, the Victorian Renewable Energy Target, finally went through the Upper House uh, late last week, on basically Friday afternoon. And as you say, that uh, re- requires our state to meet a certain percentage of its energy production from renewables. And that's a campaign we started back in 2014. So really nice to see the end of that one and get on with the job of building a, a, hopefully a lot more renewable energy in the state. And so with that uh, new mandated target, Cam, I suppose in a tangible sense, do we have much certainty about what that might mean in terms of energy transition in particular locations? Obviously, the Latrobe Valley has been one that there's been a lot of talk about. Do we know exactly how this might, might impact in areas like that? Now that the legislation has gone through, there will be the start of what they call the auction process, and that's still being fine-tuned. We're arguing that a percentage of the auction, so that's where companies bid to produce a certain megawattage of renewable energy, our argument is some of that should go specifically to the Latrobe Valley, and some of that should also go specifically to solar, which will be really good for northern Victoria. Wind is the cheapest new build commercial scale technology, so where you just have an open auction process, you're more likely to get wind built. Uh, but we're arguing that we'll look, it'll be great to give the Latrobe Valley, you know, some of that uh, work at least, and possibly something in the north of the state as well. Is this the first time we've had a state target for renewables, Cam? Sadly, it isn't. No, um, the ALP actually had one when they were in power previously and then when the coalition came to power uh, in 2010, they basically um, gutted the VRET. So it's one of those tragic things that we have mirrored at the national level and, and to a degree at the international level where, you know, climate science makes it really clear what we've got to do and governments respond and then you get another government get in and they basically, you know, destroy what was there before. So we're on the second round with the VRET. We'd have to hope uh, this time that should the coalition get into power next year, they wouldn't do the same thing. But if the auction process is underway, then a lot of new build renewables will already be underway by the time of the election. So that's why we've been keen to see the legislation get through and to see the auction process start and hopefully to see this kind of new build happening because, of course, you're not going to be taking the turbines down even if another another government gets into power. And as Carly alluded to in the introduction, over the past week we had a major uh, energy announcement at the federal level and, um, I mean, it can be quite confusing to know exactly kind of what that might mean in terms of our energy mix going forward and uh, we don't have all the information yet either, but do you have much of a sense of how the VRET might work kind of in conjunction with the national energy guarantee that was announced by the federal government? So when it was crafted, it was always seen as being what's called complementary to the national system. So at that point, we had the renewable energy target. So 
um, it mandated a certain percentage of our energy nationally needed to come from renewables. So the VREC kind of plugs into that and it's complementary rather than additional. So it was any new build renewables in Victoria um, under the VREC basically would count under the RET as well. So it didn't mean that Australia overall produced more renewable energy than the renewable energy target. But what it meant was Victoria was getting more of that build than perhaps uh, might have been the case without a VRET. So, uh, yes, so they are plugged in together. But it's just... Oh, it's just flabbergasting how the energy debate's going nationally. It just keeps going off the rails and then off the rails again and then kind of, you know, off, off the bridge sort of thing um, for a decade now. So we, we had the emissions trading scheme and we had the price on carbon and then we had the renewable energy target and then just recently we had this conversation uh, from the, the chief scientist, Alan Finkel, that we'd establish a clean energy target and then there was a backlash from the kind of ultra-conservatives in the coalition led by Tony Abbott um, who said that a clean energy target would basically be a tax on coal and now we have this national energy guarantee and no one really knows exactly what it will look like. We've got some broad parameters, but the, the, the detail is still being worked out. This is an intensely political process, and unfortunately, good energy policy is having it kind of, you know, in the back seat um, as the politics plays out. And, I mean, what's your sense with the response from particularly the Labor states, whether they might actually support the National Energy Guarantee, because we need them to for it to be implemented. Uh, at first, it, th their first reaction was quite negative um that's you know from their news grabs and the like that i've heard but do you have a sense that they might pass this through the coag process i think they probably will but i think they'll continue doing what they're doing so an, a growing number of the states are now establishing their own renewable energy targets like victoria has done queensland has uh, a target i think it's 50 percent by 2030 so it's quite ambitious Victoria has said very clearly they'll continue with the VRET. South Australia, the Premier over there said, you know, this whole national energy guarantee is just a victory for the coal industry and we're going to keep doing what we're doing, which is around renewables and storage. Um, so I think they'll kind of do both. They'll probably do some kind of deal to allow the national energy guarantee to go ahead federally. So at least finally we have some coherent policy, even if it isn't very good. And then the states will just get on with the real work which is building renewables and battery storage and things like pumped um, hydro here and just kind of get on with the job. And, and I guess it's it's difficult to hypothesise about what we might have had if we didn't have this um, national energy guarantee. But do you think, Cam, that, that this um, will extend the life of um, coal-fired power stations perhaps more than um, could have been the case if we'd gone down a, a different route? hard to tell at this point, unfortunately, because energy policy is really code for culture war debate. You know, you get on one side the conservatives who are climate deniers and love coal, and on the other side you get the progressives who understand climate change and understand the need for renewables. There's clearly an attempt to keep coal open, uh, but old coal is increasingly unviable. It's expensive um, compared to wind, but really importantly, it's, they're, they're very expensive operations to keep Thank you. 
open. So the Hazelwood Power Station, for instance, that closed here in Victoria, was going to cost more than $400 million just to make the place safe to work in to keep it open. You know, uh, and, and who would pay for that? Clearly, the taxpayers would be paying for it if we kept it open. So there's this debate about do we keep the old power stations like Liddell in New South Wales open under this new guarantee? But really, um, it, it, it's not a solution, you know, in terms of cost to consumers. And this debate, we've lost a lot of the focus on energy policy, and now it's all about so-called reliability of electricity and security of electricity, i.e. we don't want to have blackouts, as well as the cost. So they've become the dominant factors that have overridden, you know, the, the need for transition and the need to meet our international climate change commitments under the Paris Agreement. But whether that will actually keep the coal-fired power stations open, we really don't know. Talking about energy policy and I suppose the muted response to the neg, um, some people are negative about the neg and others are positive about it. And I think, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion that uh, the government has choosing its own experts cam but uh, this particular policy was put forward by the energy security board, which was actually a, a body that the Finkel report recommended being set up so in a sense they're kind of blending experts or are you concerned that they're picking their own experts what's what's your response to what's happened there oh there is just so much ideology unfortunately i mean tony abbott is driving this in terms of his opposition to renewables outright there was that hilarious um, speech he gave probably two weeks ago in london where he said that you know concern for climate change was akin to primitive people sacrificing goats you know that's how far this conversation has gone nationally and this is just about ideology wrapped up in some arguments around reliability and energy security so uh, you know the position that the, the Prime Minister has got to is he has blinked in the staring contest with the Conservatives with the people like Tony Abbott and so now they are trying to kind of hobble together this energy policy with a whole range of different uh, energy experts with this guarantee idea with there's another bit of detail which is the energy intensity calculation which would require retailers, so the people that you and I buy our electricity off, um, that they'll need to use so-called efficient sources. But, you know, exactly what that would look like and exactly what would happen if a retailer didn't actually buy the required amount, the required percentage of, of efficient sources, you know, who knows? So it's, it's really, um, it, it, it's, it's in play at present. Um, I think the details are very scant. And unfortunately, when you're framing national policy on something as important as energy because energy is the basis of everything we do it's just tragic when the starting point is clearly about politics and not really about supply yeah it seems like there's still a lot of uncertainty in there as well and I want to return to victoria just briefly cam we heard um as well that our premier daniel andrews announced a ban on single-use plastic bags and i mean i'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the type of um uh destruction and and problems they can cause in the marine environment in particular but i mean how significant is um this decision from the andrews government yeah, I think this is fantastic. This has been a long time coming um, and it's a really good move and it, it, it kind of takes Victoria one more step along the path. The logical next step is to have contained deposit legislation for drink bottles because they're a really large part of the, the waste stream of plastics that ends up 
in the environment, particularly in rivers and the marine environment. But it's a really good start. It's a good initiative. It will ban the lightweight bags, so the really flimsy bags that maybe you put your fruit in at the supermarket. It's not, to my mind, clear whether the heavier bags will be banned. But what's going on is a, there's a commitment from the state government that they'll work with business to implement this. Um, and out of that process, there's a discussion paper and there's a three-month process and that will decide you know, whether it will cover both the thin and the thicker bags. So the thicker bags being the, the bags you'd put all your, you know, your products into at the checkout. But it's also considering other causes or other sources of pollution, such as you know, balloons and microbeads and drink containers and even drinking straws which break down and end up in streams. So it's a very good initiative. It's quite systematic in the way it's looking at this and hopefully it'll lead to a, a ban on all single use, both lightweight and heavyweight bags. And without getting into too much detail, because we've run out of time, but uh, Bob Brown had a win in the courts last week and uh, it's been seen as a line in the sand for the rights for protest. And how significant is this? I mean, people, men, uh, members of Friends of the Earth do go on site and protest quite often, have for a long time. Does this give people more a sense that they can go and do non-violent protest uh, without ending up in, in court in the way that Bob Brown did? Yes, absolutely. So Bob was arrested at some forest protests in Tasmania and in Tasmania they had these quite draconian anti-protest laws. So Bob and another person took um, a case to the High Court to overturn the Tasmanian laws and the High Court said that in their determination they agreed with Bob that it was draconian and they said that, it's, that the Tasmanian laws are at odds with what they called the implied right in the Australian Constitution to freedom of political communication. So now the Tasmanian government has to consider what it's going to do about the legislation that's on the book. But this is absolutely fantastic for, you know, civil disobedience and, and, and for the right to protest, which, after all, really is part of having a really healthy and functioning and robust democracy. So very good move by the High Court. Uh, we'll speak to you again in a month's time, Cam. Great. Talk to you then. Uh, Cam Walker is with Friends of the Earth. Tensions have been high over in Spain in recent times after a contentious referendum held in Catalonia back on October 1st delivered a 90% yes vote to declare the region an independent republic. However, with the referendum itself declared illegal by the central government and Spain's highest court, Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy has over the weekend invoked Article 155 of the Spanish Constitution for the first time to strip Catalonia of some of its autonomy. This follows government efforts to thwart the pro-secessionist movement, including, uh, according to reports, the imprisonment of two pro-independence leaders and threats to arrest the popular Catalan chief of police. To give us a better sense of what's happening over in Spain and what the future might hold, we have here in the studio with us Dr. Lara Anderson. She's the convener of Spanish and Latin American Studies at the University of Melbourne. Great to have you on Triple R. Great to be here. And so, um, I mean, people might have seen reports of what's happening in Spain, but maybe not followed exactly how we got to the referendum on October 1st. And of course, Catalonia's, um, you know, for a long time expressed a, a unique culture and language and identity and so on, but has been part of Spain for quite some time. How, what were the events leading up to the referendum on October 1st? So for many Catalans, they've um, for a long time had a sense of being separate to Spain and having their own unique history, language and culture. And then as, during the Franco dictatorship, they lost the right to use the language publicly and there was um, the Generalitat, the Catalan government was um, 
was illegal. They, they couldn't have their own local governments, forms of government. And then at the end of the dictatorship in 1975, there was a lot of effort put into regaining the language and the culture that a lot of intellectuals and politicians were worried had been, and rightly so, um, lost during the dictatorship. And then, so from between 1975 and 2006, really, there was an effort for um, from the Spanish or different Spanish governments to give Catalans more autonomy in the in their own Spanish constitution and in the Catalan um, constitution as well. And then from about 2006, they started losing rights, what they saw as autonomous rights. They were no longer. Um, allowed to refer to themselves as a nation in their own constitution and for them that was really important the sense that they are a different nation and merely that it was an accident of history uh, a marriage between Fernando and Isabel that brought the kingdom of Castile and kingdom of Aragon together mm. and sort of since that time kind of making Catalans part of a or obliging them to be part of a whole that they never thought was their whole, the Spanish whole. And then when they started losing what at the beginning were symbolic rights, the right to refer to themselves as a nation, um, the right to talk about the importance of their language and that their language should have priority over the Spanish language, um, then they started saying, OK, this isn't working for us. We want to negotiate more autonomy. We want to just um, think about going back to being able to refer to ourselves as a separate nation. And at that point, the Spanish um, increasingly conservative and very kind of um, stubborn approach the Spanish government took created more support for Catalan independence and more support for politicians that would put a referendum on the political agenda. So really it sort of became um, a bit of a sort of crash course between two different nationalisms Spanish centralist nationalism and Catalan nationalism and Catalan pro-independence movement went from being something that was seen as extreme and not mainstream to mainstream and something that's had a lot of support. And uh, I mean there's been discussions also about wealth in the coverage here anyway that that the Barcelona region, the Catalan region is overall a, a very prosperous area of, of Spain and of course we had the financial crisis at the end of the 2000s as well. Has that also played into the tensions between Madrid and Barcelona? Yes, different, definitely but for lots of Catalans they feel that they, the Spanish government doesn't offer them much anymore and one of the reasons for that is the uh, economic reasons that they give and so interestingly the Catalan pro-independence movement has the support of the right in Catalonia mm. and the left. So the right say economic we contribute a lot more to Spain than we get back and we would we would do better for ourselves outside of the Spanish state. And the left says uh, we could implement more progressive legislation. We want to, in the time of economic crisis, have a fairer tax system um, and, and just make sort of employment fairer and higher wages and they're all sort of improvements that they think they could implement more easily outside of Spanish governance. Mm, it's interesting that, that two sides of the political spectrum in, in Catalonia are essentially united on that. And I was, I was wondering because, as I mentioned in the introduction, there was a 90% yes vote for secession, but on my reading, there were only kind of just over 40% of people who, who voted in that. So are Catalans, on your reading at least from, from here in Australia, fairly united in, in wanting independence or, or is it quite divided in, in that region despite what the referendum might tell us? 
It is divided. It probably is about 50-50 at the moment. And there was a low turnout, so 2.2 million of the 5.5 um, enrolled electoral voters voted. But also we have to remember that there were the Spanish police was sent in with um, tear gas and rubber bullets to physically stop people from voting. Because they had their own police force, the Catalans, did they? No, the, the Spanish health, government yeah. sent in the yeah, national police. Yeah, they sent them in. Mm. To stop people from voting and they used um, tear gas and rubber bullets and, you know, and people were injured. 800 people were unnecessarily injured. So we know that only 40% of the population voted, but we don't know how many people would have voted um, if there hadn't been that use of state violence and also so many kind of claims about the referendum being illegal. I mean, the Spanish government and the Spanish Prime Minister can keep on describing it as illegal, and it's consistent logic that he keeps on sticking to, but he says nothing can happen outside of a constitution that was written in 1978 in the wake mm. of a repressive Franco dictatorship, which imposed a monolithic idea of a Spanish identity. So I don't know how relevant that constitution is as a historical document that was written in, in itself, mm. written in the wake of an illegal dictatorship. Well, and this is the first time that, that Article 155, yeah. which which removes essentially some elements of autonomy from Catalonia, um, has been invoked in Spain. Yeah, it's an extreme move. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I've seen reports that they call it the nuclear option, that this that the, really, if you want to have conflict, and I'm not saying necessarily violent conflict, but conflict, you pull that Yeah, that yeah, it's definitely a, people are asking as well, will we see a civil war in Spain? It's extreme. And um, I mean, what happens next? The Catalans is probably going to increase support for Catalan independence because they feel humiliated to be under the rule of, or the oppressive authoritarian rule of the Madrid government. And I think we can't forget the 20th century history of Spain, that there was a dictatorship from 1939 to 1975 that imposed in this sort of way a monolithic Spanish identity and took control of Catalan institutions. So it's just very recent. That's right. And, and I've seen some people on social media, kind of, you know, progressives um, expressing solidarity with Catalonia. And I wonder um, to what extent that's been driven by seeing national police, you know, being quite heavy handed in that region with that recent memory in mind and, and whether that will lead to continued support and solidarity expressed internationally for, for their yeah, plight. Definitely the actions, the Spanish Prime Minister's actions increased international support for the Catalan independence movement and also support within Catalonia as well. Mm. And Dr Lara Anderson is uh, speaking to us about that Catalonia's push towards independence. Uh, she's Spanish and Latin American Studies convener at the University of Melbourne and uh, it's Look, we, we do, we're in the middle of it at the moment, aren't we, with what's happening there? And this idea of pushing for new elections, is that a concern for people that this, that the national government might force that in Catalonia? It, that, it looks like that will happen, that they will um, force elections in January and they think that that will resolve the problem. The Spanish government thinks that a new government will be elected and it won't be a pro-independence government. But I think the, the figures are pretty even at the moment and it, the pro-independence supporters in Catalonia could easily win again. And also um, Carlos Puigdemont, the president of the Catalan Generalitat, has said that they might still uh, declare independence within the next week or so. So they could do that. There's nothing really to lose now. Now that Article 155 has been invoked as the nuclear kind of option, um, the extreme option, 
there's nothing for him to lose, mm. you know. Um, we've had people that have been imprisoned for their involvement in the Catalan independence movement, a very extreme constitutional move invoking that article. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what will happen next, but really independence could easily be declared in the next week, I think. And we've seen um, pro-secession kind of movements expressed across Europe in, in recent times. Of course, people remember Brexit and, and um, the UK withdrawing from, from the EU and also uh, the referendum for independence in Scotland. This is, of course, a very specific situation that's unfolding in Spain. But I wonder about the role of the EU in this. I haven't heard um, a lot of a, a lot from them thus far, but maybe I'm not reading the same things. Do you have a sense of what, what no, they should do or, or, or can do in these situations? They- Thus far, they've been pretty absent from kind of public discussion. I think disturbingly so, given some of the really oppressive actions from the Spanish government. I think behind the doors, they're saying, um, behind closed doors, they're saying that they don't support the extreme use of police force or the invocation of such, of such a kind of extreme, um, aspect of the constitution, that, that article. Um, but they're in public and publicly, uh, saying that they agree with Rajoy. I think they don't want any more nation states in Europe and it would be bad for the European Union and so that's kind of the line they're taking. Gee, and so what, I mean, what's your sense of what might happen, Lara? Uh, I think that we will, that Catalonia will declare independence and then um, I'm not sure what will happen from, from there. Probably because the European Union is showing support for Rajoy and doesn't want any more smaller nation states and is worried about what that would mean for more further nationalist movements in Europe and also for the European Union, that Rajoy will be supported at, at that kind of official, international official level. Um, and so he can just trigger elections again and and for the rest of us, I mean, is it just going to be that, you know, you hear all the time we're in this sort of brave new world uh, where there's Trump and then there's Brexit and then there's, and you know, Catalonia and this idea that we're, we're not sure politically what the future is for all sorts of parts of the world. Yes, I mean, but the thing with Catalonia, I think it's important to not lose sight of how long the history is mm. and that it's not just the Catalans being radical. In fact, it's the Spanish centralist government that has imposed an idea of Spanish identity. So I think often we think it's the Catalan or the peripheral nationalisms taking radical steps or doing something that we don't expect. But the centralist nationalist movements or the centralist governments have been doing that for a long time in Spain, much much longer in fact. Mm. Yeah, Somebody, well, I read a guard, an article in The Guardian that compared what's happening in Spain to an Almodovar movie, the craziest <laughs> craziness of it and what might happen next. <laughs> well, we'll have to, all have to wait and see, won't we? We will. Mm. Thanks so much for coming in, Lara, and um, perhaps we can catch up with you again as things move along, as they no doubt will um, in the very near future. Thanks for your time. Okay, great. Thank you. The Village Festival is rolling into town this coming weekend. It will be in the Edinburgh Gardens, and if you haven't been there before, it's kind of... Look, let's let Susanna Kalik tell us. She's the artistic director. It's what is... How do you describe it, Susanna, the village? It kind of rolls up and looks like it should always be there in the Edinburgh Gardens. It's got an amazing <laughs> entrance. It's got kind of carny vibe without the rides. Yeah, yeah. Um, hi, yeah. Well, well, you're describing it really well, actually. <laughs> I can keep going. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, that's what it is. It's sort of it's sort of based on the idea of an old circus coming into town. But um, unlike the the circus, we actually um, don't travel with all, all our acts. We we um, we program acts from the local community where we travel. So we actually work quite often months or weeks in advance with the local community to fill up the village. 
Yeah. And you've just come back from Canberra. So I suppose that's, I mean, how do you, how do you do that? Do you, do you go to the same places every year or you add new cities to your traveling schedule? Yeah. Well, um, we do go to new cities every year <laughs> and every year looks very different. Um, there's just a few that we do almost every year, which is, you know, the Edinburgh Gardens is the one that we do annually in um, Melbourne. Um, and we also always do the Falls Festival as part, we are f- a part of the Falls Festival, but we, we kind of, um, travel around towns or cities that, um, invite us really. And, um, we, we, before Canberra, we, um, we went to Tennant Creek in the Northern Territory with a smaller version of the village. Well, um, I just passed through there. Yeah. Just yeah. last week. <laughs> that's, that's an amazing place. It is. Yeah. yeah absolutely. In the world. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I um the first time I um stumbled across the village festival was at Falls Festival probably 10 or 12 years ago when I was probably 18 years old around yeah. then but um but there was a real sense of um kind of the the unexpected and and spontaneity and it kind of felt like that when I found it with some friends that we'd kind of uh, found something really special and it was like our little place that was kind of secret in a way that, that you're finding something that's really kind of special. How do you go about programming with those types of things in mind to make it have that real kind of festive, um, that sense of spontaneity about it? Yeah, um, well, what you, you mentioned the Falls Festival and I remember we were also in a very beautiful spot, um, in Lawn at the Falls Festival where you actually really had to go on a hike yeah. to find that. It, world. it didn't even seem like it was an official thing there yeah. at that time. It just like, oh, there's some people here with some crazy stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's, I find really the exciting thing about programming in the village because I find very often in life, in general, that things are very, um, you, you, it's, it's very, um, normal to, to get what you expect. And, um, I find it quite a little bit boring about a lot of festivals and that's, and, and, and the village, I, we always want to keep that it is, that it has a lot of those expect, uh, um, Aspects that you find things that you, um, okay, yeah, there's music, so everyone knows what a band on a stage looks like. But then you go and, and, and buy yourself a cup of tea or a drink, and then you find this little corner where somebody sits and, um, does something that you totally, un- is totally unexpected. But, mm. you know, it's, it's about the intimacy of finding those places with small audience, with small crowds and audiences and where you can actually, really relate to that artist or to that project and I think that's really important in life. And I think, I mean, I can give an example of that. A a few years back, uh, I was at the village in the Edinburgh Gardens and there was a caravan there and there was, I had little kids with me and he was baking scones and so you could sort of line up and he'd say, yes, come into my caravan and bake scones with me and talk but then you put shoes on, you took your own shoes off and you put slippers on and the slippers were actually hollowed out loaves of bread and it just (laughs) changed everything. The kids just went into this magical world of conversation and scones in bread slippers Mm. and it's hard to explain how that 
makes it yeah you're sort of stepping out of your normal everyday life when you have an experience like that yeah 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 um, unless people wear bread slippers at home i'm not sure i don't want to, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to presume they don't <laughs> yeah i don't really think they do but yeah this is this uh, these are the um sort of village travels around and we do find a lot of um people in artists that we work with in the communities that we travel to but we also have a core group of artists that kind of tra- travel with us and um, the person that you just mentioned is Trevor Flynn who's been working with us for years and he every year he comes up with something that is just that you yeah you, you don't ex- you don't find it other um festivals very often and he's he's a visual artist and a performance artist and he just um builds his own world up so he, we don't really know what he does when he comes on site a few days before the festival starts and then he, we just give him a space and we help him out if he needs you know lots of breads to make sure <laughs> well what. the thing is that what, what he did in that and I'm not sure what he's done other times is memorable and it mm. stays with you that experience yeah. and other people can experience it as well by observing what's happening and join around the fire to bake the scones or whatever it might be so it wasn't exclusionary of others but you got this intimate experience and I imagine how do you sort of have uh, performances like that but cater for thousands of people which is what you're, you're also doing yeah yeah so that you know we have also kind of uh, more obvious shows going on like We've got a main stage where there's bands. There's actually some great music this year in um, happening in Edinburgh Gardens. So we get that. And so uh, quite a few people come for the bands. And then um, we have always a theatre tent um, set up, um, the Sun House. And they, um, the, we pre-program some interesting theatre in there. So, you know, you, if you can just go and see a band and go and see a theatre play. But then when you're sort of roaming around and you stick around for a bit, you can find these little secret gems, I mm. call them. And sometimes they are also, some people find that really strange and weird and, and maybe have more of a negative um, experience, but I think that's also important in art. Yeah, so, and it, yeah. it's really accessible as well, which um, I, I think is a really nice flip side to some of the other kind of you know major festivals we have in Melbourne, which we're very lucky to have, such as Melbourne Festival and mm. I mean, even things like Melbourne Fringe. And I mean, more so with the larger ones where cost can be prohibitive and, and maybe you kind of you can't take kids along and that sort of thing. But with the Village Festival, entries by donation and you can head along and see a whole bunch of stuff that, um, as you say, is unexpected. And, yeah. and you don't know exactly what's going to get served up to you. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we want to keep it like that. We want to keep it accessible for everyone in the community. If, you know, people who don't have that much money or um, people that normally wouldn't want to afford money to see art. Uh, I think it's important for actually those people to just take a risk and go to a festival and they, they know that they can buy a beer or they know they can see band, but then also they encounter something that they never thought would would be possible mm. and that's and that's what we that's really important for us and food's a big part of the festival as well it's something that i associate with village when i've been down there and you've got the world kitchen which is the imaginary love child of nigella and the swedish chef yes um and um so how does the the food work because you've got people that are there kind of they might be chefs or that they just might be people who are food enthusiasts there serving up food is that right yeah so the world kitchen is a um and sort of a newish um, project of the village but it's it's it was born out of the fact that i always find that 
every, at every party or everywhere ever you go, the kitchen is the most exciting place where people stand around the kitchen bench and talk about all sorts of stories. And I find very often when I go, to, especially to more remote communities, that um, coming arriving there with an arts project or a festive, arts festival, I find a lot of people find that a little bit um, intimidating, but um, to to actually travel around with a um, with a kitchen, um, it's more accessible to people to come and taste some of the food, and then we talk about what uh, relationship they have with food, and then a lot of cultural stories um, start coming out, and it's it's really interesting for us to. Um, it's a very very community driven project, and. Um, you know, over the weekend we in Canberra we had we had a scientist coming in. It's a very broad stage as well. You can actually program everything in it. We program bands in it as well. We had to burn sausages. I don't know if you know that. Oh, I, I actually saw the burnt sausages one year at the village in yes. Melbourne. They're really loud. Those burnt They're sausages. They're really loud. <laughs> yes, and they just sing barbecue punk about uh, sausages. They have barbecue punk. I know. I, I actually haven't seen them at barbecue day here, but they God, they'd be good at it. Mm. It's yeah. uh, and they dress up as sausages. They, yeah, they are yeah. dressed up as sausages. So we programmed. Them in the world kitchen, but also like there was a scientist who normally works in Questacon in Canberra, and he did all his science experience with food. So it's actually a really um, a, a stage of anything can happen as long as there's some sort of food element in it. And 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 often we um, go around and talk to the local community. So to um, in a few weeks ago we did the world kitchen in St Kilda, and we had some African people cooking. Some young people, African young people, cooking up some traditional food and telling stories. And then, you know, the audience sit, sit up very close and they can taste the food and they, there's a conversation going. Mm. And that's um, that's the strength, I think, about that project. Yeah, Susanna Kalix is with us. She's artistic director of The Village, the travelling arts festival that pops up around the place and is uh, popping up this weekend at the Edinburgh Gardens for their annual uh sort of magical experience over over two nights and and sort of two and a half days I suppose it is Friday night it kicks off and runs until Sunday evening and you should tell us what's on the bill this year give us a bit of a kind of elevator pitch of who's who's going to be there Um, you've got some students as well as some other creative um, projects yeah so this year is looking pretty exciting Um, so yeah one of the big project is the Maze of Motions and this has been developed by um, two high schools. So I've been sort of um, working with two different high schools. One that is coming, that is based in Macedon, the Alice Miller School and, and there's a, and the Fitzroy High School. And these youngsters have been um, sort of collaborating with each other. So the, last week there was a sleepover at the, at the Macedon School and the Fitzroy kids all came over um, and they just um, been working together on this kind of experience. And I, I must say, I don't know exactly what is going to happen because it's going to be all built this week. Um, we've got plans, but um, it's going to be sort of a maze or a labyrinth where the audiences go through a space and then they they enter another space and there will be sort of six different emotions uh, will be played out by the students and... Um, and then you go out again and, and you, hopefully your life has changed. <laughs> that's no doubt idea. it will be. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really great project. And that's what we 
love to continue in the Edinburgh Gardens actually for um, young because they are all drama students and so young young people to uh, have the opportunity to develop something for that festival um, and then there's um, we also have the snuff puppets coming in this year they're going to do some roaming and they um, with their new show that they're developing for next year the um, Tales of Sorrow Garden of Sorrow Gardens of Sorrow sorry um, yes so they they will be coming in roaming uh, so look out for them they always have really impressive puppets um, we've got Adam Simmons doing on the last thing that happens at the festival on Sunday night. He is um, doing a tribute to Sun Ra. So I don't know if anyone knows that, who they are, but it's a, a yes. wacky cult. Great. Yes, we know Sun Ra. Um, I have to ask, is the famous dog show still happening? Absolutely, yes. Right. Saturday <laughs> we have the famous dog show, um, 3.30 I think. That's and not to be missed. No. It's, it's, I actually saw some of the dog shows at the Royal Melbourne show uh, just recently and it's got nothing on the famous dog show at the village. No. So, No, <laughs> no. But it was born out of this kind of idea of like why do people have pets and dogs and they actually bring them to shows and then we thought like oh let's do it in a sort of a fun way. And um, it's yeah, it, again, it's it's – so great because it's actually the community and your audience members who are performing for the community so they're actually sort of performing for each other and that's what we like the most <laughs> really and um, costume making for the for the dog show as well so if you come early on the saturday you can create a beautiful costume for your dog <laughs> They've got so much personality, those owners. I mean, those dogs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so much more going on. The 10-minute dance party is going to be there. And so you think you can interpretive dance. So, look, you can get you can get hot and sweaty and have a lot of fun down at the village. And I'll see you down there. And uh, Fingers crossed the weather stays stays kind. I think it's looking good for the weekend. It's going to be a little bit of painful for us bumping in because we're starting today and tomorrow and it's going to be a bit rainy but over the weekend i've seen it's going to be sunny and dry so mm, lucky perfect yeah, yeah edinburgh gardens and it's the place to go anyway isn't it over summer it's just so oh, yeah. busy down there uh the village traveling arts festival kicks off this friday uh, at six o'clock and runs through until sunday eight o'clock and uh susanna Kalick, thank you so much and uh she's artistic director of the the village and uh i'm sure if you keep your eyes peeled you'll see her down there over the weekend as well thanks for coming into triple r thank you this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.